following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Honestly, I really was going to start off this morning and, and just kind of make a few sort of small talk jokey type things about Christmas season and how busy it is and blah, 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 Christmas trees and all of that sort of stuff. But you know what? Just listening to that worship and just being in that space, isn't it amazing that we have so much more to talk about than Christmas shopping at this time of year? Isn't it amazing that we have so much more to our lives than the stress that goes along with this time of year? Trees are great, carols are great, all of that sort of stuff are great, but it all points to something phenomenal, doesn't it? I hope we don't miss this chance this year to kind of just immerse ourselves in the wonder of what this story is all about, of what it means to be Christians, what this time of year means for us. I just, I just think that's an incredible thing. And it all comes down to Jesus. It comes down to what he did for us, which means I think it's actually kind of appropriate we're going to spend the next couple of two, three weeks, I believe, um, hanging out in the Gospels a little bit and just kind of hanging out with Jesus and, and seeing a little bit of who he is, this solid foundation that we have. So I want to dive into that this morning. And the passage that um, I've picked is actually, it's an interesting sort of turning point passage. I didn't pick it for that reason. I picked it for other reasons, which I'll get into in a second. But I've got this passage from Matthew chapter 16. And um, I was looking into it, and I sort of, when we take a step back from it, when we kind of hover over the book of Matthew, kind of like a helicopter, and you're looking at the big picture, and you see the way that Matthew is kind of, sort of he put together his story of Jesus. He's kind of framed his telling, his witness to the life of Jesus. This passage actually forms a turning point. You notice like a lot of stories, a lot of sort of things that happen, they have this turning point where it shifts direction and zeroes in. And this is no different. This is actually a big turning point for the life and the ministry of Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has been building his ministry. He's been doing his thing. Um, and it's been really about the miracles and the teachings and all that sort of stuff. But after this moment, his story pivots, and it starts pointing directly towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards the real purpose of why he came. You can see it, actually, in the first verse following uh, the story, verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So after this particular moment, after this story, this passage, Jesus starts letting them in. He starts letting them in on his plans. And everything changes. And he starts with this zero laser focus, zeroing in on his final mission to go to the cross to pay for our sins. So that makes this moment kind of a big deal, doesn't it? I mean, that makes this, this pivotal thing, the story, very, very important. And what's interesting is it's really not that mind-blowing an event. 
I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens in Jesus' life, and this really wasn't that magnificent. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't an epic sermon. It wasn't anything like that. It was really just a conversation. It was just a chat that he had with his disciples. But that chat changes everything. For the last two years leading up to this point, the disciples have been on a whirlwind adventure with Jesus. I mean, it's been crazy. He, they have seen him do some incredible supernatural things, right? He has healed people of sicknesses. He has cast demons out of people. He has fed thousands and thousands of people with a sack lunch. I mean, he has raised people from the dead. Peter has even gotten out of a boat and walked on water because of Jesus. It has been mind-blowing, the, the journey that they have had. And I think over the two-plus years leading up to this moment, they have slowly and surely started to figure out that this Jesus guy that they have been walking around the dusty roads of Israel with for two years is more than just your average carpenter. I mean, he's not your normal, Right? They're starting to figure out that there is something pretty special about him. Slowly, very slowly, but they're getting to this point. And so one day, Jesus is uh, walking with them as they do, and they're up in Caesarea Philippi in the far north of Israel. And they're walking along, and then Jesus just stops, and he turns to his disciples, and he asks them a question. He asks, who do people say that I am? It's pretty an innocuous question, isn't it? What are the rumors about me? I mean, because you've got to remember, Jesus has caused quite a stir. You can't do the things Jesus did, say the things that Jesus did, annoy the people that Jesus annoyed without getting some kind of following. And so everywhere he goes, crowds of people are flocking to see him and to hear him. Some of them, not such good intentions. Some of them aren't on board with what he's saying. Some of them are not necessarily going to put their lives in his hands. Some of them are. But they all want to hear him. They all want to see who is this Jesus guy. He's like a celebrity. And like with any celebrity, with all of this attention, there are these rumors that start floating around about who he is. Like I said, some of them not quite as friendly as others. His family tend to think that he's crazy. He's just nutso. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they kind of are building this idea that he is possessed by a demon. And that's where he gets his power from. Other people are a little friendlier, and they're thinking that he is some kind of Old Testament prophet or some kind of powerful messenger from God. I will tell you this, though. No one is running around saying that he's just some guy. They may not like him, but they're not saying he's just a good teacher. He's just like some guy who's trying to help people out, trying to point people towards God. He's just like a regular rabbi. He's just doing his thing. No one's saying that because it doesn't fit the story. So the the disciples reply. They say, some say John the Baptist, who had been beheaded previously, and some people thought had come back to life in the ministry of Jesus. Others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So there's this kind of theme that people are coming up with here, that there's something powerful about who Jesus is. And so they're thinking he must be one of the prophets brought back to minister again in Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that, Jesus, that God is going to, to bring back the power of the prophets again. 
There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years, and so they're like, finally, God is speaking to us again. And so they're like, you are some major prophet. And that's a pretty lofty compliment, don't you think? I mean, that's high praise for a guy. But Jesus is not really interested in hearing about what other people are thinking about him. This is kind of just a bridge question, isn't it? Because really what the question he wants to know, the question he asks next, the really poignant, directed question is this. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's kind of key, isn't it? I mean, that's really what it's about, isn't it? It doesn't really matter what other people think about Jesus. I mean, it matters, but it's not really affects us. What really matters to us, who do we say that Jesus is? And so Jesus asks this direct question. After two years of running with me, of being part of my little posse, who do you really think I am? We've got the options laid out here. Crazy, demon-possessed, Old Testament prophet. What do you think? What's your pick? Who am I? And then Peter, bless his heart, he steps forward. And he has this moment of realization, this moment of faith. And he steps forward and he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And with those words out of his mouth, the entire direction of Jesus' ministry changes. It pivots on that conviction. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. From that point on, Jesus brings them into his inner mind of what is about to happen. From that moment on, he is pointed to the cross. But why? Why does he pivot on that moment? Why is that declaration so important? I believe it's because they finally get it. They finally realize who Jesus really is. They finally realize that he is not just some prophet, although that would be amazing. He is more than that. He is more than anyone could ever figure out. He is the Holy One of God, the one promised throughout the entire Old Testament, the one that the whole Scripture points to. He is that person. And with that faith, that statement out there, Jesus is like, you've got to that point now. That I can work with. Now, does Peter know the complete picture of who Jesus is? Does he know that that Jesus is fully God and fully man? He's part of the Trinity? Does he have that full Christology of what we call that? Probably not. He probably doesn't. But he knows that this is the guy. He knows that everything has been pointing to this moment. He knows that this is the one we have been waiting for. This person is the hope of the world, the hope of Israel. And that is what Jesus needed to hear from him, that he can work with. And so then the story turns towards the cross. But before it does, Jesus takes this pivotal moment. Jesus takes this this really foundational moment And he uses it to make a declaration. And I love this declaration because it is going to change the entire landscape of history. This couple of sentences he is about to speak is going to change everything. He says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there it is. One of the most talked about passages of Scripture. Because it is as much a mission statement for the church as there is in the Bible. And Jesus gives these words, I will build this church. This is where we are introduced to this community of followers of Jesus. This community of people that is going to start out with this ragtag little group of people huddling in the upper room of Jerusalem, scared out of their wits after the death of Jesus. And it's going to start with that group and it's going to expand through to every nation in the world and survive for 2,000 years and still going strong based on this moment. It's pretty big. And as a person who God has called to start churches, a church planter, this is a pretty big moment for me too, right? This is a big passage for me. And since you're stuck here listening to me, it's a big passage for you as well, right? And I was actually, I was getting very, very excited. This is the reason I picked this passage, because I wanted to talk about the church. I was excited about it. I'm getting ready to start a church, and I was just kind of got this, this in my mind of, of what the church is, and I was going to talk about what it is that Jesus was building, I was going to zero in on this, on this phrase, I will build my church. And I was going to talk about how it's not about, you know, the, the building or the institution, but it's about the community of people. And I was going to uh, touch in on this, you know, Hades won't be able to overcome it. And it's, it's in, felt like it's unbreakable, this church. And I was going to talk about, you know, this mission that we have of binding and loosing and what that means. And it was going to be very great. It's going to be a very cool sermon. I'm sorry you're not going to hear it. Because as I was going through the preparation process, I really felt like that's not the direction I should go. For a couple of reasons. One is, Reuben and other preachers have done some great series over the last three or four years about the church. And I recommend, go on the website, have a look at the podcast, search out um, what the church is and those messages about that, because they're great. And they cover that. And the other reason is, I'm not entirely sure that the core focus of this passage of what Jesus was saying, is as much about what the church looks like as it is what it is built on. Or to put it another way, I believe the phrase that we should be looking at is not, I will build my church, as much as it is upon this rock. Upon this rock. What is the basis that Jesus is building his church on? What is this foundation? What is the rock? And we see from this passage, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, Petros, Greek word for rock. You are the rock, not that rock. You are this rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, immediately we've got a bit of a controversy then, don't we? Because if Jesus is saying Peter is the rock, 
Peter is, we've kind of got this thing. Am I saying that he's like the head, the leader, the first pope? Right? I mean, we've got that conversation that starts coming up immediately. On one hand, we've got people who say, Jesus calls Peter the head of the church. Peter, uh, Jesus says that it's going to be based on him, and so he is our first and foremost in the church. He's the first pope, and everything flows out of that. And then on the other side, you've got people saying, no, 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 no. It's not about Peter at all. It's about his words. It's his confession. The church is built on that confession. And back and forth, this argument goes. And in fact, as early as the second century, You've got people like Origen and the early church fathers who are weighing in on this issue. But without getting too deep into the details, I really find both of those sides not quite adequate. I mean, on the one hand, Scripture does nothing to support the idea that Peter was greater than anyone else. There's no support for the idea that he was the head. He wasn't even the head of the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't even in charge. On the other hand, though, I don't think we can separate Peter from his words. I don't think that what Jesus says allows that. Jesus does not say, upon these words, I will build my church. He says, upon you, upon Peter, I will build my church. So I think the richest understanding that we can have of Jesus' words here, is that Jesus is building his church on the totality of who Peter was. As the first to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter becomes this, this poster child, if you will, for what kind of foundation Jesus is building his church on. And I want to flesh that out a little bit. And it does begin with Peter's words. Or to put it more accurately, the church is built upon the truth of Peter's words, which you'll see up on the screen here. The church is built upon the truth of Peter's words, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. This is central to everything, right? I mean, Jesus as Messiah is the core of everything that we believe. It is what separates us out from every other religion in the world. As similar as it may look like we are to people on the outside, right? The thing that separates us is Jesus as Messiah. It is even what separates us out from Jewish faith. It is core. But what does it mean for the Messiah? What does Messiah mean? Okay, so all throughout the Old Testament, this idea of Messiah has been coming through. And this, this chosen one, this anointed one that God was going to raise up. And this person was going to rescue Israel, right? So like Moses, he was going to lead the people of God out of slavery. He was going to restore Israel and he was going to make the people free and prosperous again. It was a beautiful promise. People have been holding out for it. Now, we know with 2,000 years of hindsight that Jesus was not making a political statement. God wasn't making a political statement through that. It wasn't that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and restore the literal nation of Israel to power. But rather, he was going to lead us out of a far greater, more dangerous slavery to our sinful nature, to the mistakes that we make, to the darkness that is inside of us. He leads us out of that. And so we become invited into his family, and we become a free 
and prosperous people in the family of God, right? Jesus, the Messiah, is our rescuer. But that's not the only image of the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is also king. Throughout the Old Testament, the image of this Messiah was a mighty king like David, who would rule over all of the earth with absoluteness, with incredible power. His his reign would never end. I think we sometimes forget the kingliness side of the Messiah. We we like the rescuer. He's cool. Uh, The king, I'm not so sure about that one. But that is who Jesus was. Jesus was both Savior and King. The Messiah was both Savior and King. And so as Savior and King, Jesus is the central figure in the entire story of the world. What I find very interesting is that he was a central figure even before the fall in the Garden of Eden. You know, when we messed up and we introduced sin into the world and we needed Jesus' help, he gave us that help, but he was also there before and he was still central even before we needed him. Have a look at Colossians 1. This passage is up on the screen here where it talks about that Jesus is central even to creation. All things were created by him and for him. He is in all things and before all things and in him all things hold together. He is core and central. And then if you look through the scripture, even into the end in Revelation, he again is the central figure. Long after he has done the work of saving us from our sins, He is still king. So Jesus is the central figure of everything. He doesn't just come down, die on the cross, go back up to heaven, sit down, crack open a Coke, and his job is done. He is still king over the kingdom of God. And the church is built on the truth that Jesus is that Messiah, that Savior, and that King. But then we realize that the church is a community of people. And we realize that it is built more, the church is built on more than just the truth of those words. Now follow me on this one, because it sounds a little heretical when I say that. It is built on the truth of those words. But if you think about it, those words are true. Jesus is Messiah, whether Peter said them or not. He was Messiah before Jesus said it, and he would have been Messiah. He would be the central part of the story, even if the church never existed. So there is something that is added to the layer of that truth that forms the basis of our community. And I believe it is this. I think the church is built not just on the truth of Peter's words, but on his faith in the truth of those words. In the midst of a culture that was not prepared to accept Jesus as Messiah and would become very quickly, violently opposed to Jesus as Messiah, Peter steps up and says that it is so. He declares it to be so. And he doesn't just think it. He doesn't just believe that it is true. He is willing to say it. He has faith that it is true. He is holding on to it. He's entrusted his life to the truth of those words. It is not a theory for him. It is not an intellectual pursuit 
for him. It is his life. He has faith in it. He trusts the truth of those words that Jesus is Messiah. It's going to cost him his livelihood. It's going to cost him his reputation. It's going to cost him his very life in the end. But he trusts that Jesus is the Messiah and he makes him king. It's not just that he believes that he is the Messiah. He is making him his Messiah. He's taking it on in his own life. I love Peter's words. In John chapter 6, when, when all of the Jesus' followers start walking away from him, everything seems to be crumbling a little bit. The shine is kind of off the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12, the disciples, and says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter, with this, it's almost this childlike faith. He just says, Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's faith. When everything falls apart, when everything is going against you, when everything is hard, you still hold on to your belief that Jesus is King and Messiah and Rescuer. That's what faith is. And that is what the church is built upon. When Jesus builds his church... And remember, it's, it's not like we're building the church, okay? Don't think I'm giving us too much credit here. Jesus is building his church. Peter was never building the church. But it is built upon this foundation, this rock of our faith in the truth of the words that Jesus is Messiah. But there's another layer as well, because it wouldn't be a sermon if there weren't three. It's not just the, 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 the truth in Peter's words, and it's not just his faith in the truth of those words. But the church is built on Peter's willingness to live out his faith in the truth of those words. He lives it out. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, very delicately tells us in his book that faith without deeds is dead. It's a very tactful man. And Peter, he embodied that idea. He embodied the idea that it is not enough to simply trust that Jesus is the Messiah. It pushes us to do something. It pushes us into action. And so he was not just going to sit idly by, and he had his moments. <laughs> but eventually he realized that if I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if I hold my life to that, i got to live it. I've got to act out on it. And this is where it circles back around to where the church is built not just on Peter's words, but on his life as well. And we can see it playing out in the life of Peter. Peter may not have been the greatest apostle. He's not elevated above anything else. But we should not be surprised that he was the first to push the gospel forward through the greatest barriers of the day. If we look in the first 10 chapters of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter is the first one to preach the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, other than Jesus. But he is pushing that forward through that first barrier. In Acts chapter 8, it is Peter along with John who go up to Samaria and validate the faith that the Samaritans have shown in Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 10, it is Peter who is asked by God to go into a Roman household and preach the gospel to the Gentiles and push through that barrier. Peter is not the first pope. He is not greater than all of the other apostles, but he is, he is kind of like the point of the sword that pushes the gospel and the kingdom forward. And then the church follows in his example. The other apostles follow in, and then we follow in after that as well. So I'm not elevating Peter above anyone else. I'm not declaring him to be a pope, but I recognize that it is more than just his words that Jesus is basing his church upon. But it is life as well. Now, what I really find interesting is this, and this is where it comes down to us as well. Because we recognize that Peter, as the poster child, he represents us as well, right? We are continually building the church, or Jesus is continually building the church through us. Because it is a group of people, not a building or an institution, it is continually growing and changing. As new people rise up. Peter himself says in his book that, that we are like spiritual stones being built into the house of God. It is a continuing process. And he continues to build his church through us and based on a foundation of our faith. But what I find really interesting about that foundation is that it is not a perfect one. I mean, look at Peter. We learn from Peter's amazing faith in this moment when he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. But I'm telling you, not three Verses later, Peter is already getting in the way of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus has to tell him to get behind me, Satan. But you know what? We learn from that too, don't we? That's part of the story. We learn from Jesus when he, uh, from Peter sorry, when he has this faith to get out of the boat and walk on water towards Jesus. But we also learn about his Lack of focus and faith when he slips into the waves just a little bit later. We learn from Peter and his passionate zeal for Jesus when he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers as they're trying to arrest Jesus, right? But we also learn from Peter's denial of who Jesus is and knowing Jesus even that night. Peter's life is filled with great moments and horrible moments. It is filled with strengths and weaknesses, good times and bad times, successes and failures. And the church is built upon the rock of all of it. It is all part of the story, the heritage that we have. If you look through the Old Testament, it was always that way, wasn't it? The story of God has always been the story of people doing good things and making colossal mistakes. In the New Testament, after Jesus and after Peter, we have more stories of people doing good things and bad things. Throughout the last 2,000 years, as the church has spread out into the world, we have amazing stories of faith and success. And we have some boneheaded mistakes as well. I'm looking at you, Crusades. All right? It is all part of the story of who we are and how God is building His community and our willingness to live out our faith in Him. It is not perfect, but it is real. I mean, you think we're celebrating 20 years of shore, a church, and our history has the same, doesn't it? We have moments of really good times. We have moments of bad times. 
It's all part of that story. It's all part of who we are. It all builds us up and pushes us forward. Because the key is this. We are a broken people through whom Jesus offers wholeness. We are a broken people through whom Jesus offers wholeness. He is building his church through the brokenness of who we are. And that is a beautiful thing because it doesn't mean that when Jesus says, I am building my church on you, on Peter, that Peter has to be perfect. When he continues to say that and he says, Hamish, I'm going to continue to build my church through you and on the foundation of your faith, that my faith has to stand up and be perfect. Because it's not. And neither is yours, I imagine. Not pointing fingers, but I'm pretty sure if we're all in the same boat, none of us have perfect faith. But that doesn't matter. He still builds his church through you. And so I encourage you, as you think about where you are, and as we talked last week about the vision of where Shore is moving in the next six years, and we look back over the past 20, and we do the same thing with our own lives, and we look back where God has taken us to this moment, and where we will step forward in partnership with Shore, moving forward in the next six years. What is that going to look like? How is Jesus going to build his church through each and every one of you in this place at this time? It comes down to one singular question. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he just a prophet? Is he demon-possessed and crazy? And look, you may not have an answer for that yet. I'm not saying you have to have that sorted out in your own heart and mind right this very moment, because that's a journey as well. I encourage you to explore that, to ask questions, to figure it out, because that is the central question. It is the question upon which our lives pivot. It is where the direction of our lives changes upon the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And then when you have that answer, are you going to put your life, are you going to build your life, like we're saying, on the truth of that statement? Are you going to live that out? Because that is the foundation upon which Jesus is going to continue to build his church on the North Shore, and in Auckland, and in New Zealand, and in the world from this moment forward. So I challenge you, over this next little while, don't, don't let it slip away over Christmas. Maybe that's a great little Christmas homework project. Answer that question. Who do you say, who do you believe Jesus really is? And then build your life on that. Let me pray. Lord, you know that I have wavered in my time. Even as I have stood up and as, as I have preached and as I have spoken your words to people and as I have taught people in your name, Lord, you know that I have wavered in my own heart. 
My faith has not been perfect, and it will not be perfect until you come again and you continue to build in me. But Lord, with whatever I have at this moment, I declare that you are King and Messiah. And I want to live my life and try to live my life out on that truth. May we all have that declaration on the tip of our tongue or get to that place. And then may you build your beautiful church on our imperfect foundation. Thank you that you would even think to do that with us. Thank you that you care enough and love us enough and that you are our foundation that is perfect, that is sustainable and strong and unbreakable. It's in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.